Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. Imagine for a moment that you were a player in the NBA. Now that would be amazing, right? We are all basketball fans here, and getting the opportunity to play in the best league in the world would be a dream come true. Now imagine further that you have had a very successful career and are considered a really great player. However, the team around you is not that good and you want to play elsewhere so you can have a fresh start and an opportunity to win a championship. The one thing that is still missing from your resume. Your contract is finished, so normally this would be your opportunity to leave for a new team. But the year is 1968, and even though your contract with your team is over, under league rules you cannot just sign with another team. Your current team would have to trade you or agree to release their rights to you. Remember, your contract is over. But that situation leaves you with only two options. If your team does not trade you or release you, then your choices are to sign a new contract with your existing team or else retire. That is what happened to Oscar Robertson, and this is Basketball History 101. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to the award-winning Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is a podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. We are bringing old-school basketball to a new-school audience. And today, we bring you the story of when Hall of Famer Oscar Robertson sued the NBA. In fact, the name of the case was officially... Oscar Robertson versus National Basketball Association. That was a lawsuit that opened the door for free agency in the NBA. Now you might be thinking to yourself, wasn't free agency always part of the game? I mean, how else does a player move from one team to another when their contract is up? Well, this is what we are going to talk about today. The reason that I wanted to do this story is because of the incredible impact this lawsuit had in giving players increased freedom of movement. It also shifted the leverage in contract negotiations from the owner to the player. So while this story is about something that happened off the court, it created a seismic shift in which team players choose to play for and how quickly the NBA landscape can change. So let me give you a bit of historical context that led Oscar Robertson to file this lawsuit against the league back in 1970. From the creation of the league in 1946 until 1970, players were drafted just like they get drafted today. But here's the part that is considered very unusual by today's standards. The team that drafted the player owned the rights to that player in perpetuity. That means forever. This is known as the reserve clause or option clause in NBA contracts. So, if a player was drafted by the Philadelphia Warriors or the Cincinnati Royals, the player belonged to that team until the team decided that it no longer wanted the player. So, let us continue with the Oscar Robertson example. Robertson played basketball at the University of Cincinnati, and after four incredible years there, he was drafted by the Cincinnati Royals in 1960. Robertson now belonged to the Royals for the rest of his life, even if he had no contract in place. Once his first contract expired, he was not allowed to sign with another team. He could only sign with the Royals or else retire. Unless the Royals decided to trade him or renounce their rights, there was no way that Oscar Robertson could play for anyone else. It would have been against NBA rules at the time. He was stuck. 
The team had all of the leverage in contract negotiations. He had to take whatever salary the team offered. It was a take it or leave it situation. If he refused the contract, then he was simply out of the league. Something had to change. So the lawsuit was officially filed on April 16th, 1970. Now let's take a moment to imagine a hypothetical situation. Let's go back to the summer of 2010 when LeBron James wanted to get out of Cleveland and go to another team. At the time, LeBron interviewed the Cavaliers, the Heat, the Bulls, the Nets, and the Knicks. Each team got something like two hours to make their best pitch for why LeBron should join their team. Now the money thing was not an issue. Each team was prepared to offer LeBron the maximum salary allowed. If the year had been 1960 instead of 2010, LeBron would have had no choice but to sign a new contract with the Cavaliers for however little the Cavaliers could have gotten away with. Chris Bosh would have had to stay in Toronto and the Miami Big Three never would have happened. Kevin Durant would have been stuck in Oklahoma City. James Harden would have been there too. Shaquille O'Neal would have been with the Orlando Magic for his entire career. You get the picture here. At the time of the lawsuit, Robertson was one of the most respected players in the league as he was the president of the Players Union. That is why he put his name on the lawsuit as the lead plaintiff. In addition to Oscar Robertson, the co-plaintiffs in the lawsuit were the union representatives from each of the other 13 teams in the NBA. This included Bill Bradley from the Knicks, Tom Meshery from the Warriors, John Havlicek from the Celtics, Wes Unseld from the Bullets, Dick Van Arsdale from the Suns, John McLaughlin from the Bucks, as well as others. The players that I just named have all been to at least one All-Star game. This was a who's who of the top NBA players risking their careers to sue their employer. The owners threatened to expel them from the league, which they could not do because the players were all still under contract. So why wait until 1970 to file the lawsuit if this had been an issue since the beginning of the league? One of the things that happened in the previous few years was the creation of the ABA, the American Basketball Association. I have a personal fondness for the ABA and what they did to bring basketball forward with lots of fast break dunks and the three-point line. But with the creation of the ABA, there was now competition for player talent. The ABA was offering huge contracts to get NBA players to jump leagues and move over to the ABA. But this brought its own set of lawsuits. Rick Barry of the San Francisco Warriors tried to jump to the Oakland Oaks of the ABA, where his own father-in-law was the general manager. The Warriors sued the Oaks, and Barry had to sit out an entire year of basketball while the suit went through the court system. After a year, he played four seasons in the ABA before returning to the NBA and the newly renamed Golden State Warriors. This made the ABA worried about trying to steal other NBA players. So the ABA went after the college kids and grabbed them before they could sign a contract with the NBA. They got Dan Issel, Artis Gilmore, David Thompson, Moses Malone, and the crown jewel Julius Irving, all to choose the ABA over the NBA. Salaries in both the ABA and the NBA were going up as the two leagues battled for talent. Now this was good for the players, but there were rumors in 1970 that the ABA and the NBA were going to merge. With a merged league, there would be no more competition for player talent. Robertson and the rest of the players union and the leadership were worried that the salaries were gonna go back down. This was a specific event that precipitated the filing of the lawsuit. Now this is a good place to take a break and I will be right back with the rest of the story of Oscar Robertson versus the National Basketball Association. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.
Hi, everybody. Dan and Andrew from Hello Old Sports here. We wanted to drop in and let you know about our latest episode. That's right. We interviewed the co-authors of Phyllis George, Shattering the Ceiling, a biography of groundbreaking broadcaster Phyllis George. And her life is really sort of a journey through 20th century America, from Miss America pageants to the Kentucky State House to the groundbreaking NFL Today show on CBS, even the Kentucky Colonels, the old ABA. We got into all sorts of stories about the Celtics under Red Auerbach, about the interview with Roger Staubach, about really all sorts of things, a fight between Brent Musburger and Jimmy the Greek. We really enjoyed talking with Lenny Shulman and Paul Volponi, who teamed up to write this book. The book is on sale right now wherever books are sold. You know, within reason, garage sales, probably not. So go ahead and pick up a copy today. And if you want a chance to win the book, you can go to sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways and register for a chance to win. Goodbye, old sports. Welcome back to the show, and let us continue with the story of the lawsuit filed by Oscar Robertson against the NBA. The primary argument laid out in the lawsuit was that the reserve clause violated antitrust legislation. Now, I do not want to turn this into a legal affairs podcast. This is still a basketball show. But basically, the lawsuit stated that the reserve clause violated sections 1 and 2 of the Sherman Act and sections 4 and 16 of the Clayton Act. Now, those two pieces of legislation allowed for certain organizations to have a monopoly over their industry in exchange for following certain rules that were laid out by the legislation. Under these laws, the NBA was allowed to have a monopoly over professional basketball in the United States as long as they played by certain rules. The players felt that the NBA was breaking those rules. By the way, the National Football League and Major League Baseball also operate under the same antitrust legislation. The immediate result of the lawsuit was that the NBA and the ABA could not merge until the lawsuit was settled one way or the other. In other words, the NBA-ABA merged of 1970 was blocked, so the leagues had to stay separate. This is what Oscar wanted from the lawsuit, but the lawsuit languished in the court system for years, meaning that the reserve clause was still in effect until a judge could rule on the matter. Eventually, a judge was found to adjudicate on the case. The judge was named Robert L. Carter. Now, if you are familiar with civil rights legislation and its history, then you know that Robert L. Carter argued for the plaintiff in the very famous Brown versus Board of Education case in 1954 that went all the way to the United States Supreme Court. This was the case that made it illegal to segregate students in public schools based on race, even if the conditions were deemed relatively equal. In any case, Judge Carter decided that the lawsuit did qualify to be heard under antitrust laws. The case was finally going to trial in 1976, six years after it was originally filed. The case took so long to get to this point that most of the plaintiffs had already retired from basketball and would not reap any of the personal benefits from the decision. The year that Robertson filed the lawsuit turned out to be his last year in Cincinnati as the team no longer wanted anything to do with him because of the lawsuit. They traded him to Milwaukee where he teamed up with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and won the 1971 NBA championship with the Milwaukee Bucks. On the eve of the trial, the NBA decided to settle out of court. Their thought was that they should settle and try to save certain aspects of the lawsuit rather than go to trial and possibly lose everything listed in the suit. 
The date of the settlement was April 29, 1976, so the NBA and the Players Union negotiated into the wee hours of the night before letting the case go to trial. There were a number of things that were decided in the settlement. Number one, restricted free agency was now going to be the new rule in the NBA. This means that once a player's contract expired, the player could enter into negotiations with any other team in the league and seek contract offers. However, the original team would have a chance to match match the best offer. If they decided to match, then the player had to stay with his original team but with the new higher salary. If the team decided not to match the offer, then the player could go ahead and join the new team. But the new team would have to compensate the original team with either a player or draft pick. Since this ruling, the players have won unrestricted free agency, so compensation is no longer part of the equation. A player can just leave once their contract is up. Number two, the NBA teams no longer own the rights to their draft picks forever. Once a team drafts a player, they had only until the next draft to sign that player or else the draft rights expire. This clause was actually used by Danny Ferry. Ferry was a star player for Duke University in 1989 when he graduated and entered the NBA draft. He made it well known that if the Clippers drafted him, he would never play for them. He would rather go play overseas than play for the Clippers. Well, the Clippers underestimated him and drafted him anyway with the second overall pick in the draft. They tried calling Ferry's bluff. Danny Ferry immediately went and signed with a team in Italy and played there for his rookie season. The Clippers just spent their second overall pick and they had no player to show for it. They would have been better off if they had taken Sean Elliott, Sean Kemp, or Glenn Rice who were all still available. But this is not the way the Clippers did things back then. So rather than lose Ferry completely, the Clippers decided to trade his rights to the Cleveland Cavaliers in exchange for Ron Harper and two draft picks, and they had to make this trade before those rights expired. The following season, Danny Ferry joined the Cavaliers and had a very underwhelming NBA career. Number three, high school players could now enter the NBA draft. Daryl Dawkins and Bill Willoughby immediately took advantage of this ruling and declared themselves eligible for the NBA draft as high school seniors in 1976. Dawkins, or Chocolate Thunder, had a very solid NBA career, and we did a profile on his career way back in episode 8, if you want to check that out. Willoughby did not have a great career. He simply was not mature enough to move from high school basketball to the NBA where he would play with and against grown men. Number four, the NBA as a league was now allowed to enter into merger negotiations with the ABA or any other future rival league. And that's exactly what happened. The NBA and the ABA merged that summer in 1976. And I cover a lot of that story in episode 29 if you want to check that out. With the success of this lawsuit, the NFL Players Association and the Major League Baseball Players Union also won similar lawsuits against their leagues to establish their own versions of free agency within their sport. With the lawsuit now complete, the new free agency rules were dubbed the Oscar Robertson rule. Robertson always felt that if salaries went up for the players that it would bring in new fans and a renewed interest in the NBA. Professional athletes are essentially entertainers, like any actor or musician, and he felt that they should be paid as such. And he was right. After this case, NBA players started signing the first million dollar contracts, and many in the public started asking, what is this guy doing that he's being paid a million dollars a year? How good could he possibly be? 
Well, this is exactly what Oscar Robertson thought would happen. People bought tickets and turned on their TV to see what all the fuss was about. League interest rose and that meant additional income for the teams from which they could pay the higher salaries. Now here's one final side note. The lead attorney for the NBA in this lawsuit was none other than David Stern. He was a young up and coming lawyer. The league thought so much of him and the work that he did that they hired him away from his law firm and two years later he became the head of the newly formed legal department for the NBA. In 1984, Stern became the commissioner of the entire league. And when he took over as commissioner, you could buy an NBA team for just $25 million. And the average NBA salary was $500,000 per year. Now, by the time he retired in 2014, it would cost you over $1 billion to buy an NBA team. And the average player salary was $5.1 million per year. Well, that is our story on Oscar Robertson versus the National Basketball Association. I have said something like this in previous episodes, but I felt that it is true. Every player who plays in the NBA should seek out Oscar Robertson or any of the other co-plaintiffs and shake their hand and say thank you. If he had not risked his career to file that lawsuit, who knows when free agency would have become a thing. All current players directly benefit from this lawsuit. And because salaries have risen so high, the NBA now attracts the best players from all over the world into a single league because the NBA pays the highest salaries. This is a direct benefit to all the fans of the NBA as we get to enjoy all of the best players competing against each other for nine months out of the year. Robertson's lawsuit was a big reason that the NBA is now a global basketball brand. So I say to Oscar Robertson, thank you. Join us next time when we share the story of the NBA's first high flyer, Elgin Baylor. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts and check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, 
That's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.